2: Good evening. We're continuing to follow the news out of Houston, Texas. Tonight, George H.W. Bush, the 41st president, 93 years old, is an intensive care unit of Houston Methodist Hospital. Just two days ago, the world watched him say farewell to his wife, the former first lady, the woman he married 73 years ago. Then a few hours after this remarkable photo was taken, President Bush was hospitalized. CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel has the very latest. She joins me now. So what do we know right now about the president?
3: What we've been told is that Sunday morning he was suffering from an infection. It became a crisis. He was brought into Houston Methodist Hospital and went right into the ICU and that the infection led to sepsis, which for someone his age with his health problems right. is really dangerous. And that on Sunday they had some real scares that Twice, his blood pressure dropped, and they weren't sure he was going to make it. The good news is that they've been giving him antibiotics. They've been giving him IV fluids, and it seems to have stabilized him. He is still in the ICU, but I'm told that it's it's very serious.
2: Um, there was a, a statement put out uh, by, by the family, yes?
3: Right, and, and that statement says... That President Bush was admitted to the hospital after contracting an infection that spread to his blood. That would be the sepsis. That he is responding to treatments and appears to be recovering and that they'll issue additional updates. I I think that everyone is hopeful. Mm -hmm. He appears to be recovering. But when you're 93 years old, when you have Parkinson's, when you've been in and out of the hospital a lot,
2: they don't know. And you suffered
3: a great loss.
2: How did he uh, you, I know you were you were at the funeral uh uh th- this weekend how did he seem then I mean we saw the images of it.
3: So you know the first picture you showed was Friday when he went to greet the public which was extraordinary Extraordinary and unexpected And he, he chose to do that He chose to do that he was watching a video feed and he said I should be there. Mm. Classic George Bush. And he went down and he's, they said, well, you'll only stay for 15 minutes. And he stayed and stayed and stayed. And so it was very stoic. It was. And then.
2: It must be, I mean, exhausting. I mean, it, you know, he's absolutely. making contact with all those people shaking hands. Absolutely.
3: And then Saturday was the funeral. It had to have been very emotional. we We saw the pictures. It was heartbreaking. Uh, when his son Jeb read one of the love letters that he had written on a wedding anniversary to Barbara Bush, he broke down. But I will tell you, I'm told that after the burial at college station, he went out to dinner with mm. his family so Saturday night. He was doing pretty well, and then Sunday morning, it was a different story.
2: It was so interesting to hear the, the, the reactions of uh, George W. Bush, uh, some of the other uh, children, some of the, the five children of, of this remarkable couple, that, I mean, obviously because of the age of Mrs. Bush, but, but their faith uh, has really helped them through this, this sense of they know where their mother has gone, they know how she faced her death and how she lived her life.
3: Right, so you hear from the Bushes always what are the three most important things faith, family, and friends. Uh, There is no question. A lot of people didn't know that Barbara Bush had been suffering from COPD for the last two years. At the end, she told them, I am at peace. It's time. And I think that helped. Them. Hmm. President Bush has been saying, when I saw him last, he said, I'm going to live to 102. <laughs> so he's had a tremendous amount of energy. But these two people were married for 73 years. Yeah. This is a great love affair. This has been a terrible loss uh, for him. And you have to just think it has some impact.
2: It's also, I mean, just the extraordinary life that, that he has lived and, and frankly continues to, to live. I mean, that they met. You know, you talk about 73 years. She was 16 years old uh, when they met at a at a dance. Right. And it wasn't long uh, after. I mean, uh, I think he was 19 when he became the youngest airman flying in the Navy.
3: Exactly. They were they were very young. She loves to say, and it is true that he was the first man she ever kissed, the only man. And she said her children always rolled their eyes Mm -hmm. at that. But it was an extraordinary relationship. You look at the old pictures, his plane had her name on it. And they've been through so much.
2: Yeah, it's hard to imagine one without the other. Correct. Yeah, Uh, they lived their entire lives together. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, We're going to come back uh, to Jamie momentarily right now. CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us. Sanjay, just for people out there, let's talk about sepsis, what it means to, to someone President Bush's age.
4: Well, you know, this is an infection that has uh, become a a more serious infection, sometimes a life-threatening infection. Uh, Typically, it can start off even as a minor infection in the skin or as a kidney infection or in the blood, uh, urinary tract infection, but it becomes something that uh, starts to overwhelm the body. Uh, Sepsis itself can progress to severe sepsis, can uh, progress to septic shock. Uh, In the initial stages, um, you know, someone typically has a high fever fever. Uh, they, they figure out what is causing the problem, and they start to treat it with antibiotics and hope that the uh, uh, fever comes down, the bacteria is cleared, and that whatever vital signs, if there was any abnormalities, return to normal. That, that's the goal initially, Anderson.
2: How does, uh, and this may be a dumb question, but how does somebody get that infection in in the first place? I mean, uh, obviously, the, the president had a a, you know, a very busy weekend, of emotionally yeah. uh, painful and, and draining weekend, but a lot of interaction with other people. I mean, what, how does one get an infection like
4: that. Well, you know, I, th- I think there's two two things to, to sort of keep in mind here. One is the the infection can start off as a relatively minor infection. Still, it can start off, uh, you know, something that uh, in someone who's otherwise healthy has no under, is, is not has no other underlying medical problems, uh, they'd be able to combat that infection. Um, but this is something that does start to spread, and it could be because. One's immunity is, is weakened, uh, certainly in very young and very old people, their immune system is already weakened. But to your point, Anderson, um, people talk about uh, the, the toll that a loss like this takes on the body. What does that toll look like? It can sometimes uh, have an impact on the heart, and there is a syndrome called broken heart syndrome, but it can also have an impact on your immunity. Your ability to fight infections, so it could be a combination of things: getting the infection, which maybe not all that uncommon, but then the more difficult uh, time of clearing the infection on his own.
2: And, and according to the family statement, he, he uh, the president is responding to, to treatments uh, appears to be uh, appears to be recovering. That certainly sounds uh, optimistic.
4: I th- yeah, it, it certainly does, and you know, being in the intensive care unit at a place like Methodist is, you know, it's it's one of the best places you could be in the world uh, to to try and take care of this. But I would say that you know, he, he is at ninety three years old. He does have um, these underlying medical problems. Uh, he and he's been you know, he was hospitalized almost a year ago to the day. I think it was middle of April last year for pneumonia. So, you know, th- these are all concerns you got to weigh into the to the picture. So uh, it's great that he's on the men. But these types of recoveries are not typically measured in, in minutes and hours, Anderson. They're more days and weeks. So you want to you want to make sure that the trajectory remains in the right in the right direction. And that's going to take some time.
2: And, and how might Parkinson's disease play a factor in that?
4: I think uh, primarily because when someone has Parkinson's disease, they're they're just more immobilized. Uh, When you are more immobilized, uh, you are more likely to develop these infections. Now, again, you know, it, it doesn't mean you can't clear these infections on your own, meaning your body is sort of naturally taking care of these, or it doesn't get to the point where someone develops a high fever or develops difficulty breathing or, or, or signs of early sepsis. Um, but in, in Parkinson's, and again, given his age, these, these factors all in, in aggregate uh, might make it harder for him to to, to fight the infection on his own.
2: Mm. Sanjay, stay, stay with us. Jimmy Gangel is is coming back in as well. Uh, also, uh, Gloria Borger is here, and, and Paul Begala. I mean, Gloria, this has been um, such a difficult week, uh, obviously for the family, but for uh, for George H. W. Bush, it's uh, I mean, it's unthinkable to lose the love of your life, the person you've been with for more than seventy years,
5: uh, who's also uh, taken care of you, who's been with you the entire the entire time. And you know what was so striking to me watching our coverage was him sitting there and shaking the hands of every single person who came by to pay their respects. As Jamie says, it's sort of classic uh, George H.W. Bush, but so gracious. And clearly, this, this was not easy for him, either emotionally or physically, to be able to do that. And yet he sat there and he did that. And um, just watching it was so emotional for, for someone like me. It was almost as if he didn't want to leave her yet. And he wanted to do what she would have wanted him to do, which was to be political and sort of greet everybody and say, thank you so much for coming here, which is exactly what he did.
2: And Paul, I mean, it really does speak to that sense of sort of service and honor and um, just fealty that I think is so important in the Bush family.
1: And putting others first. You know, He famously always talked about how his mother told him not to use the word I. <laughs> and and he, she hated, his mom hated if he talked about himself in the first person. There he was with his daughter, Dora, going over, uh, completely unscripted, unplanned, going over. And these things are very carefully planned for aging first families. Uh, and going over there, shaking all those hands. And yet here's another typical George H.W. Bush thing. Uh, this morning he was telling AIDS. I have a May tenth event for Brian Mulroney, the former Canadian Prime Minister. said, so I got to get to that. I got to get better in time to get to that, and then I want to go up to Kenneth Bunkport. In other words, he's still fighting and mm. he's still planning his life ahead and still thinking about obligations to others, like his dear friend Brian Mulroney.
2: Yeah. It's amazing. It's also you talk about Kenneth Bunkport, Jamie. I mean, it's rare that you have a family that is so sort of connected. I mean, you talk about bicoastal people, and this is not bicoastal, but uh, so rooted in Texas, and yet also. Eastern established.
3: He has spent every summer of his life up in Kennebunkport in Maine except for when he was in the navy. Mm. It is a touchstone for him. It is so important. And and just to go back to his health for a moment what hasn't been reported is he's been in and out of the hospital many more times than we know about keeping him going, dealing with these infections, dealing with breathing problems is an ongoing balancing mm-hmm. act.
2: Sanjay, you, you talked about uh, somebody, you know, with obviously he's, he's in a wheelchair. Does that contribute to the danger of infections? I mean, sort of uh, sores or, or things that might develop yeah. from, from lack of movement?
4: Yeah, that, that, that's a real concern. Uh, just, just pressure points can d- lead to some skin breakdown. And, uh, you know, those can seem like relatively minor infections again. But uh, for someone whose immune system is not as robust as someone who has underlying medical problems, that's when those infections can start to become more widespread and problematic. And and in addition to the infection, uh, it's in part the body's response to that infection, if you will, Anderson, meaning that the body responds aggressively trying to fight it, but as it does that, it can lower someone's uh, uh, blood pressure. It can, um, it can change someone's heart rate. It can, it can cause breathing problems. So it's the body trying to do its job, but, but that can also be part of what makes somebody so sick. So that's the balancing act as well. Got to treat the infection, not hurt other organs, make sure that the vital signs stay stable uh, throughout all that as well.
2: Yeah. Sanjay Gupta, Gloria Borgia, Public Health, and Jimmy Gengel. thank you very much. We'll continue to monitor late developments throughout the broadcast. Uh, with uh, former uh, President George H.W. Bush. Coming up next, we have breaking news just in involving the president's physician and his choice to run the, the VA. And later, you'll meet the man, an extraordinary man, who risked his life to save others when that gunman opened fire at a Tennessee Waffle House.
1: Visit Zenny today at Zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN.
2: More breaking news tonight. Laid word that the president is picked to run the Department of Veterans Affairs. Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson is in trouble. CNN's uh, uh, Juana Summers uh, joins us now with the reasons why. What are you hearing?
6: Hey, Anderson, what we're hearing is that both Republicans and Democrats on the committee are reviewing these allegations, raising concerns about Ronnie Jackson, the White House position who the president has picked to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs, while they're not detailing what these allegations are yet. What we know is that they have to deal with improper conduct at various points of his career, according to two sources. Now, those sources tell my colleague Phil Mattingly that the committee is in talks to delay Jackson's confirmation hearing. That was scheduled for Wednesday afternoon while they try to wrap their heads around these new details. Jackson, of course, had questions around his nomination. He's not someone who had a lot of management experience, and people had concerns about what his policy views are to lead one of the government's largest federal agencies.
2: How far along are they in either refuting or substantiating allegations?
6: They're still trying to figure this out. We spoke to a number of Democratic lawmakers who are huddling on this issue on Capitol Hill tonight. One of them, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, telling us that these are raw allegations. They're trying to figure out exactly if there's any factual basis to them. We also heard from Montana Senator John Tester. He's the top Democrat on the Senate Veterans Committee. And he told us this, that he's going to tell his staff and himself, give them enough time to do as much work as they can in the next 48 hours. There's just 48 hours going. They're going to see what they can come up with. And he asked if These allegations are troubling. He told my colleagues on the Hill today that if true, they could be.
2: So, I mean, is I mean, I was going to ask how soon they need to to figure this out. Is it that 48 hour time window?
6: Yeah, there's not a lot of time here. I think if these allegations are indeed corroborated, and it's important to note that we do not know if senators have indeed corroborated these new allegations, they could perhaps be troubling. I'm assuming Senate lawmakers who already had a lot of questions for Jackson would want to know more about these, particularly as there are a number of cabinet nominees that this administration is trying to push through right now.
2: And are these the only issues that that could derail Jackson?
6: they're not. When Jackson was selected to replace David Shulkin, who was ousted from the White House, a number of lawmakers had questions about him. The VA is a sprawling agency, the government's second largest bureaucracy. A number of lawmakers worried that someone with a more traditional military background might not have the management experience. A number of Democrats on the Hill tell me that they're concerned whether or not Ronnie Jackson would support privatizing the VA, something that Democrats and the nation's veteran groups don't want to see happen. We still don't know a whole lot about his policy views. Lawmakers have been holding their fire Really, not saying whether or not they'd supported him. So, this is a really stunning development for this nominee.
2: Jonathan Summers, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, staying you. in Washington tonight, uh, France's president and first lady arrived late today, planted a tree, symbolically at least. The tree was already in the ground when they turned up with uh, their spades. Afterward, they toured Mount Vernon and will be honored tomorrow night with a state dinner, the first one for this administration. Meantime, there's new reporting tonight on how President Trump is relying more and more on his own personal cell phone and less on his chief of staff, John Kelly. Sources inside and outside the White House telling CNN that he's increasingly dialing up outside advisors, bypassing the White House switchboard, bypassing Kelly. He's also been tweeting a lot, obviously defending Michael Cohen, slamming the New York Times as Maggie Haberman, and the Russia probe, fueling speculation about whether a pardon of Michael Cohen and others could be coming, and coming perhaps by way of the year 1913. That's when boxer Jack Johnson, history's first African-American heavyweight boxing champ, was convicted of taking his white girlfriend across state lines. Over the weekend, the president tweeted this about him. Sylvester Stallone called me with the story of heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson. His trials and tribulations were great. His life complex and controversial. Others have looked at this over the years. Most thought it would be done. But yes, I am considering a full pardon. Now, other presidents have considered doing the same. But keep it honest, given that the president has already conspicuously gone outside the normal channels to pardon two others, Guru Libby and Joe Arpaio, The question is, was this really about a message from Mr. Stallone, or is it a message to Mr. Cohen and others? Some other tweets from Saturday contain further hints. I'm quoting here. The New York Times and a third-rate reporter named Maggie Haberman, known as a crooked H. Flunky, who I don't speak to and have nothing to do with, are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hope that he will flip. The president continues. They use non-existent sources and a drunk, drugged-up loser who hates Michael, a fine person with a wonderful family. Michael is a businessman for his own account, lawyer who I have always liked and respected. Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that, despite the horrible witch hunt and the dishonest media. I'll keep it honest. of all the people to claim he doesn't speak to. His choice of Maggie Haberman is especially rich. Her story over the weekend on the possibility of Cohen flipping on the president may have touched a nerve, but it hardly negates the fact that few reporters have enjoyed a longer, more fruitful relationship with the president than Maggie Haberman and few reporters are as well-sourced as she is in the Trump White House. In any case, the White House, on two occasions today, did not rule out pardoning Cohen. I wanted
7: to uh, ask you a question, sort of following up on what you were asked this morning about Michael Cohen. uh, It was noticed uh, by some that you didn't uh, close the door one way or the other on the president pardoning Michael Cohen. What what is your... um What's your read on
8: that right now? It's hard to close the door on something that hasn't taken place. Uh, I don't like to discuss or uh, comment on hypothetical situations that may or may not ever happen. Um, I, I would refer you to personal attorneys to comment on anything specific regarding that case. But We don't have anything at this point.
2: Well, The president also lashed out again at the Russia probe, barely making a dent in Twitter's 280-character limit, quote, a complete witch hunt, he wrote. That said, Sarah Sanders today said Robert Mueller's job is safe.
8: We have no intention uh, of firing the special counsel. Um, we've been beyond cooperative with them. We're continuing to cooperate with them. We continue to repeat that we think that the idea that the Trump campaign was involved in any collusion with Russia is a total witch hunt. Uh, our position on that has been very clear since the beginning of this process.
2: Well, never mind the multiple reports by Maggie Haberman and others that the president once went to the White House counsel, Don McGann, about firing Mueller and has spoken about it numerous times to numerous people. Today, an assurance from the White House there is no intention of firing the special counsel. We shall see. Let's dig deeper into the legal angles when it comes to pardons and perhaps laying the groundwork for shutting down the Mueller probe. Joining us, CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin and Harvard's professor Alan Dershowitz, author most recently of Trumped Up, How Criminalization of Political Differences Endangers Democracy. So Jeff, Sarah Sanders left open the possibility of President Trump uh, to pardoning his personal attorney Michael Cohen. Do you see any indications that the president... Would not pardon Cohen? Well,
9: well, it's very hard to say. I mean, I, I you know, he is obviously um, dangling a pardon before uh, before Michael Cohen in in all but explicit terms. But uh, you know, Michael Cohen hasn't been indicted yet, so and he may never be indicted. So there may be no reason to pardon him. But but you know, it is worth pausing to consider. You know, again, what it would be like if Hillary Clinton were president of the United States and one of her top aides was under criminal investigation and she was tweeting, stay strong, don't flip. You know, the Republican Party would have impeachment proceedings underway already if that were the case. Now, you know, the standards have changed so dramatically that we all shrug it off. But um, it's totally inappropriate what the president is doing, but I don't think it's unlawful.
2: Professor Dershowitz, is it inappropriate?
7: I think it's inappropriate. I think it sends a message that the president may be trying to influence the decision of Michael Cohen. Look, the prosecutors can influence the decision of Cohen. They can threaten him. They can cajole him. They can even offer him money. They won't do that, but they're allowed to under the rules of the of the courts today. They have tremendous leverage over him, but I think it's inappropriate for a president to dangle a pardon. It's not inappropriate for a president to grant a pardon. Now, one reason for not granting a pardon, if the president granted a pardon, there goes Michael Cohen's Fifth Amendment privilege. He no longer is exposed to criminal prosecution. So the first thing the prosecution would do would call him in before the grand jury, tell him he has no Fifth Amendment, he has to answer the questions. If he doesn't answer the questions at that point, he can be held in contempt, and then the president would have to pardon him from the contempt, and all of that would be a complete mess. So I don't think we can expect a pardon, certainly not at this point in time. Down the line, who knows? Remember... President George H.W. Bush, who's health we're all praying for today, did pardon Casper Weinberger and five people on the eve of their trial. And the special prosecutor did say that it was designed to continue a cover up and end the, end the prosecution or end investigation of, of that White House. But I don't think it's going to happen right now.
2: Jeff, I mean, the, the president really does have tremendous i mean power to, to when, in terms of pardoning.
9: It is one of the absolute powers established in the Constitution. There's no judicial review. The courts can't invalidate a pardon. Uh, Congress can't force the president to grant a pardon. It, It is a sole discretionary power of the president. And, you know, most presidents use a procedure that is established by um, the, the, in the Department of Justice, where there's a, a pardon attorney and the, President uh, Obama used that power to grant commutations and pardons to hundreds of mm-hmm. nonviolent drug offenders. Presidents get in trouble when they go outside that process. That's when Bill Clinton went outside that process to pardon Mark Rich, the mm-hmm. fugitive, uh, b- the, uh, President Trump. Um, the pardon of Joe Arpaio, the pardon of Scooter Libby was not in that process. It, it's problematic. It's politically troubling. But as a as a matter of presidential power, there's no doubt that the president has the authority to do I, it. I'm
7: so glad, Jeffrey, is finally, finally learning that the president really does have these enormous powers under the unitary executive to pardon, to fire, to really end an investigation that doesn't make them right. And I don't condone the president telling uh, people to stop an investigation or go soft, but I would distinguish, and Jeffrey now distinguishes, between what's right and what's unlawful.
9: Well, but, Alan, thank you for patronizing me so gently there, but I actually don't think it's the same thing uh, with the, fired, the power to pro- fire uh, the uh, president, the, the director of the FBI, and actually negotiating a pardon. Uh, may well be an impeachable offense that if you say to Michael Cohen, don't cooperate and I'll give you a pardon, that may well be an impeachable offense. I agree with you. I agree with you. I I agree with you. I think that
7: could be that could be an obstruction of justice. If you offer somebody a presidential pardon in exchange for not testifying, that could be an obstruction of justice. But it would have to be proved by, you know, overwhelming evidence in that I think it, if it were to be done, it would be done in a lot more subtle a way, and it would be difficult to establish as an impeachable offense.
9: I wouldn't say but subtlety is the is the dominant characteristic of this administration, so we'll see how this unfolds.
2: Well, Professor, I mean, a presidential pardon only applies to federal crimes, not state crimes. That's now right. it's been reported that Mueller has been sharing information with the New York State Attorney General in regards to the, to the investigation. Do you think Cohen, again, we don't know, What, if anything, they have on Cohen. Uh, Do you think Cohen could face charges at the state level? I've talked to Jeff about this before, and he said he thinks it's overstated the power that the state may have uh, if Mueller is, if that investigation closes down.
7: Well, there are all kinds of rumors about uh, taxi medallions and real estate issues. Those tend to be both state and federal crimes if they have been committed. Remember, we still have to have a presumption of innocence as to Cohen and certainly as to the president. But I think there may be some power in the state attorney general. And, of course, they're trying to change the double jeopardy law now so that if a person is pardoned by the president, that pardon eliminates the double jeopardy that generally operates under New York law. And if that were upheld by the court, it could give the state a fairly powerful weapon. And in general, I think states are asserting themselves much more today in the legal arena than they ever did in the past hmm. and challenging the exclusive nature of the Supremacy Clause. So I think we may see some action by the states. States have brought lawsuits now against the president over the travel ban. So I think we're seeing muscle flexing by state attorneys general.
2: Professor Dershowitz, uh, Professor Tubin, Storda, thanks very much. Yes. Appreciate it. Ish. Coming up today, the White House was asked what the president meant when he used the words breeding concept in reference to immigration. Well, have Sarah Sanders' response next.
1: Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com
2: CNN. When the president used the word breeding in a tweet about Californian immigration, his critics saw it as an example of racially charged language. It came up today at the White House briefing, the basic question, what was the president's intention using that word? Senator Jim Acosta asked about it and read from the tweet that set off the storm.
7: I can I just ask you about uh, a tweet that uh, the president put out last week? He tweeted a lot over the weekend, but uh, last week he said uh, he was talking about uh, sanctuary cities in California and saying there's a revolution going on in California. So many sanctuary areas want out of this ridiculous crime-infested and breeding concept. We haven't had a chance to ask you about that tweet. When he used the word breeding...
10: Was he making a derogatory term about Latinos in California, that they breed a lot or that they're prone to breeding? No, he's talking talking about
8: about the problem itself uh, growing and getting bigger. What does breeding mean to this president? Because when you think of breeding, you think of animals breeding. I, I'm not going to begin to think what you think. Um, certainly, I think that uh, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, but the president is talking about a growing problem, and I addressed that with Jim. I don't have anything else to add.
10: One, just to define what the president meant about breeding, to
7: be specific, he's not talking about People having babies. Yes.
8: Not that I'm aware of. I'd have to ask him to, to, to dig into that deeper. I, I, I just said not that I'm aware of. And I would have to ask him to be more specific.
2: So the president, according to, uh, to Sarah Sanders, there is saying that in this context, the word breeding is synonymous with the word growing. To be clear, we can find no record of Mr. Trump as uh, either civilian or president using the word breeding that way. Uh, let's talk to uh, former Trump senior campaign advisor, Jason Miller and CNN political commentator, Bakari Sellers. Uh, Bakari, you hear Sarah Sanders saying uh, that the president referred to, quote, the problem itself growing and getting bigger. That's what breeding concept meant.
11: Well, I, I think that we have grown accustomed to Sarah. Uh, becoming a pretzel from the podium and attempting to get her and meander her way in and out of situations. The, the president is president of the United States, not necessarily because of politics or policy, but I think it has a lot to do with cultural issues in this country. And what he was going to was the heart of his base. What he was talking about is this breeding concept where you refer to animals that way. Um, Of course, it was derogatory. This isn't anything new. And the reason that he's able to do this and harp on these issues is because culturally, there are a large segment of the population who are afraid of this country becoming browner. And any time the president's able to go back and harp on that and point that out and show the divisiveness and show the divides that we have in this country, he proves to be successful with his base. And so... I'm not outraged and want to flip the table over. And this is par for the course for this president of the United States. My job is to call him out on it. And the fact that he doesn't have the courage to sit up and say, you know, simply, look, this is how I feel about people of color. Like y'all go out in dark places and breed. This is what you do. I mean, this is not about a growing concept. This is about showing that the country's becoming
2: browner. In places like California, he has an issue with that. Jason, is breeding concept that, as Sarah Sanders says, the problem itself is growing and getting bigger?
10: Well, I think uh, when I first saw it, and keep in mind this was last Wednesday, so we're talking almost a week ago. Um, I don't think I saw it when the president tweeted it exactly at that moment. When my first reaction when I saw it? I thought maybe he meant breeding contempt, and that was the phrase uh, that he was using there. Um, I didn't think anything of it moved on. I didn't see much news of it over the past five days, and then it pops up in today's. So
2: you thought the concept, when the word concept was meant to be contempt. That's that's that
10: was the first thought that I had. Didn't think much anything of it. And then there wasn't a heck of a lot of news on it over the past five days. And then it pops back up and it gets brought up. uh, In addition to Jim, another reporter brought it up during today's press briefing as well. Uh, But uh, the president has brought up sanctuary cities over and over and specific to California, as we saw their Senate just passed something to try to make the entire state a sanctuary state. So this is something the president has talked about on the campaign trail. It's something he's talked about. He's probably had, what, 10 or a dozen tweets um, sanctuary cities and now sanctuary state over just the past week or two weeks alone. I've never heard the president use this charged language that I think folks are trying to uh, put in his mouth or make it sound like he's making some some racist type comment. I think he was just offering up his commentary on sanctuary cities and then he moved on and didn't think about it. And that's my opinion on it.
11: (laughs) You know, uh, this whole debate, this immigration debate, this debate around sanctuary cities, it's, it's almost brilliant the way that the President of the United States has enveloped this in like a national security type apparatus that we're doing this to make sure that our citizens are safer. When in all honesty, that's not it at all. I mean, you can use racially charged language and envelop it in this larger argument of sanctuary cities when the fact is, it was derogatory. I mean, this, I mean, with, with all due respect to my friend Jason here, this breeding concept is not new. In fact, this is language that's ripped right out of white nationalist nazi sympathizers this is not this is not a new phrase right, no, that's, no no that's i'm not calling too, i'm not calling far. the president that but what i am saying is that simply this phrase that he used it, is a direct it, it, it's there it's it's that language over and over again so whether or not he consciously used it or not the fact is, it's still a derogatory piece in racially charged language.
10: But we have, as Anderson pointed out, we haven't seen the president use those two words next to each other. Uh, I've definitely heard him say breeding contempt before. Um, but I, have again, don't know to this specifically to this tweet. But he's talked about sanctuary cities over and over. I mean, when he had the angel bombs uh, that would come and join him on the campaign trail or Kate Steinle's family. I mean, the issue of sanctuary cities and this outright disrespect for the rule of law was a yeah, major was a uh, for sanctuary cities? No, oh, that outright contempt for the rule of law. Law is ironic oh but it's uh, but it's a big when you talk about culturally the fact that you have actual municipalities and now an entire state is basically giving the middle finger to the rule of law like this i mean this was a big part of the reason why president trump won in 2016 well i,
11: I honestly and anderson I, i'm sorry to belabor this i don't believe that this is a conversation about the rule of law at all. And I think that what he's able to do with, with his immigration language, with his build-a-wall language, with his kick-em-out, with his sons-of-bitches referring to NFL players, with this breeding contempt language, it all ties in together. Because what he's doing is he's talking about one of the glaring issues we have in the United States it's of America. Illegal immigration? Race. And so that's what he's doing. I mean, I, listen... People want to say all the time, like, I'm going to get this on Twitter, Bakari, stop playing the race card. Stop. I'm not playing the race card. I'm black, right? I'm not playing a card. This is who I am. And I'm telling you that when the president uses derogatory terms and language, when he when he wraps this up in some policy ideal that is so transparent that we can see through it. I mean, he's referring to people breeding like
10: dogs on the street. I mean, that's that's not... There's there's no way that's what he was referring to. You can accidentally use racist language, I guess. he, He doesn't use language like that. We've never heard him use language like that in some different kind of context. Yes, he talks about the wall, which I hope he builds it, and I hope they get it from sea to shining sea, except for maybe a couple of places. I hope he does something about sanctuary cities. I think it's absolutely disrespectful that an entire state could move in that direction. And I think it's an important issue. Look, we're on opposite sides. Sides of this issue, and I respect yeah, that. Maybe we, but, can get, maybe we can protect but,
11: dreamers together. And I, all I'm saying well, is that... you got to call be, Chuck and Nancy be, to we get We them gave him $25 billion. Dollars. Well, my <laughs> only point is that he, the President of the United States has an obligation and a duty. First, he, he should not tweet if he was trying to say breeding contempt and said breeding concept. That's first. But second, he has an obligation to represent all of the individuals and, and, and in this country and not be
10: derogatory. Respectfully, I'd say don't come back at it and say that this was some uh, raci- racially charged comment uh, when that's not the way the President the talks. All right.
2: Uh, we're going to take a break. with Jason Miller. Thank you very much. Coming up after a deadly shooting at a Waffle House in Tennessee, the manhunt for the suspect finally comes to an end. I'll tell you how he was caught and a conversation you will not want to miss. I'm going to speak to a remarkable man who wrestled the gun from the shooter. We always ask, what would you do in a situation like this? Would I be able to rise up and, uh, and take the gun from somebody, risk my own life to do that? This, that's exactly what this man did. You'll hear from him next.
1: I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by
12: Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
2: A man accused of killing four people in a Nashville area Waffle House is now in custody. The 29-year-old suspect was arrested late this afternoon after a day-long manhunt. In a moment, we're going to talk to James Shaw Jr., the hero who wrestled the gun away from the shooter. But first, more on the manhunt itself. Randy Kay joins us now. Randy, you were right there leading up to the capture of the suspect. Walk me through what happened.
13: Well, Anderson, we were out uh, earlier this afternoon, and we're at this apartment complex where there's also a construction site, but the apartment complex is where the suspect was living, so we were there doing some of these on-camera stand-ups that we do. And sure enough, this truck with a construction worker in it came speeding up to us, and he said, I thought you were the law. And I said, sir, what's going on? And He said, well, I just called the police because I thought I saw the suspect uh, walking through our construction site and making his way into the woods. So he called 911. He said, the guy is here. You should come and get him. He's wearing black pants and a red shirt, which is what the suspect was found wearing. And so, sure enough, I said to him, do you want to go on camera? And he said no. He was a little concerned about putting his face out there. So as soon as he drove away, Anderson, moments later, dozens of police cars came racing over there, racing down the street in front of us, lights and sirens blaring. They swarmed the apartment complex. They went up and they talked to that construction worker who directed them to a path inside the uh, that area and right into the woods. And they all went into the woods. They they split up in the wooded area and they were able to nab that suspect in the woods, Anderson. So we Have talked you been to able... the guy and they certainly weren't. Uh... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying they certainly weren't trying to hide the fact that they were coming after him. I mean, they came with such a scene, lights and sirens blaring. Uh, they certainly weren't trying to sneak up on him.
2: Have you been able to learn anything about the victims from the shooting?
13: Yeah, we have. And it's important because a lot of people here are talking about the four people who died. Two of them were killed outside the Waffle House. Two others were killed inside. All of the victims, Anderson, were under 30 years old. Uh, Waffle House employee Torian Sanderlin was killed outside, along with Joe Perez, who apparently sent his mother a text message, the very last communication, saying, I love you. Those killed inside were Akila De Silva and diebony Groves. And De Silva's cousin said that The world has lost a talented young man who excelled in computer science, was a quick learner who never gave up. So a very sad day, Anderson, here in Antioch, Tennessee.
2: Randy, thanks very much. Appreciate it. As Randy said, a terrible tragedy, four people killed, all under 30 years old. Could have been even worse, if not for the actions of James Shaw Jr., who wrestled the gun away from the shooter.
12: James, at what point did you realize something terrible was happening? Probably when the glass was broken and shattered and... There was dust in the air and I looked back and there was um, a gentleman right there beside the entrance of uh, Waffle House and he was um, laying there on the ground. Uh, He was no longer alive and he shot again and that's when I jumped from my seat uh, and kind of slid on the ground to the entrance um, of the bathroom. Uh, When he started shooting, I actually jumped and lunged towards the bathroom area and uh, I uh, I was actually looking at him and then when he He actually shot towards the bathroom area, and I was actually uh, grazed with a bullet in my upper right uh, elbow. After that, I think he had to reload. I saw an an opportunity um, to kind of take advantage of him. So I ran through the door as fast as I could, and I I hit him with the door, and that kind of made him a little woozy, and then he kind of let go of the gun, and then uh, we was tussling for the gun, kind of wrestling for it. And he had it in one hand, and then that's when I I took it from him.
2: People think about how they would react in a situation like this, but nobody knows until it actually happens. I mean, what was going through your mind when you made the decision, okay, looks like he's reloading, I'm going to do something?
12: The only example I can give it to you is if you've ever almost drowned and you're gasping for that that air, that last bit of air or or breath that you don't think you're going to get, it take. It seems like it's gonna take that long. So in that second I saw the barrel pointed down at the ground, it seemed like it was forever. I know I say it happened in a split second, which it did, but it seemed like it was forever. And in that time I was like, I have to go now. So I said, he's gonna just have to work for this kill. And uh, it, it luckily worked out in my favor. Like the gun was hot, he was naked. I didn't, none of that mattered. I could deal with nudity. And I could deal with a hot gun. You know, I got a blister on my hand. but So you you grabbed yeah. the,
2: the, the, the barrel of the gun, and it was, and it so was hot? The,
12: well, yeah, after it had been discharged, and, you know, it was very hot. But I didn't feel that then. I was just trying to get the gun away from him. You know, there's some people who have
2: asked if, if this could have been a racially motivated incident. Was he using uh,
12: racial, uh, you know, inappropriate racial words or, or just swear uh, words? As, as far as I know, it was just swear words. Uh, okay. All of it was a blur. Like, literally okay. all of it was a blur.
2: I mean, do you consider yourself a hero? Because, I mean, I, I sure do, and I'm sure everybody in that restaurant does as
12: well. Heroes seem kind of like they're not touchable. If I'm looked at as a regular person, if somebody else is in this situation, they have that same thing within them that they can they can project out also. You know, James, uh, I, I have this thing where I, I don't believe in naming
2: the the shooters in a case like this, in a mass shooting, because I don't think history should remember that person's name Um, But I certainly hope history uh, and everybody in this country uh, remembers your names. James Shaw, Jr. Uh, Thank you you so much for for what you
12: did and talking to us tonight. All right. You have a good one.
2: Remarkable guy. That's a GoFundMe page he set up uh, for uh, the victims uh, and for those who have uh, injuries from this shooting. There's breaking news in Toronto. The death toll has risen to 10 after a van plowed into pedestrians. What we know about the suspect in custody next.
10: Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes Analyst, Richard Jefferson, on Bleacher Report's The Full 48.
11: For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level, and so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it.
10: The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Now, the investigation in Toronto and the trauma after a driver used a rented van as a deadly weapon against pedestrians. At least 10 people have died. Others are very badly injured. Alex Marquardt joins us now from Toronto. What do we know about this? What's the latest?
0: Anderson, well, we just heard from federal and local authorities who gave us a a fuller picture of how this attack uh, unfolded and also provided some updates. As you mentioned, the death toll has now climbed uh, to some 10 people. Most of the day it was at nine, but that's because many of the injured uh, are and continue to be in critical uh, and serious condition. We also heard from the authorities about the attacker himself. He was taken into custody without incident. They have identified the attacker. He's a 25-year-old from Richmond Hill, which is about half an hour from here. They did provide the name. As you Anderson, we will not be reporting that name. But they said this is not a name contrary to some earlier reporting uh, that was in their files now that right now they are not calling this a terror attack. They're saying it is not a threat to national security. There's no indication that there are any other attacks uh, that are in the works and they are not raising uh, the terror threat level. Now, they are offering a bigger, a better picture of how this unfolded this afternoon. It took some 26 minutes from start to finish, starting at just 1.26 p.m. Anderson, this is one of the biggest streets in the country, Young Street at 1.26 on a beautiful day like today. It would have been bustling with people going to and from work, uh, to and from lunch. The attacker in that white rider rental van hopping up on the sidewalk, driving southbound on this side and really plowing into people we spoke we heard from witnesses uh, who said that who described the scene as a nightmare as a pan, as pandemonium saying the driver was going as fast as 40 or 50 miles an hour as he was ramming into people
2: anderson have i mean have police spoken to the possible motive uh, of of this person i mean we've seen that video that's extraordinary of after it was done of the uh, the man Uh, basically holding up uh, I'm I'm not sure I think what it was holding up toward a police officer and then drawing it several times almost like he wanted to be shot by the police officer
0: Yeah, that's a big question right now is what is the motive? And some people have speculated that it was suicide, that he was looking for suicide by a cop, as they call it. Uh, The authorities uh, have have not said that, but you're absolutely right. That is some incredible video at 152. So 26 minutes, as I mentioned, after this attack uh, started, the police did manage to corner the attacker. They got him out of the car. You see him pointing something at the at the police. Uh, They say it was not a gun. However, the attacker claimed that he had a gun. The police said, we will shoot you if you don't put it down. Um, They managed to get the attacker on the ground and handcuff him without firing a shot. So showing remarkable restraint. Let's just show you some of that video. Uh, but no, Anderson, there, uh, there has been no declared motive right now. As we mentioned, uh, right now, they, they don't think that it was a terror attack. There has been no claim of responsibility. But when you see it, an attack like this, uh, of course, it dredges up those horrific memories of, of other places where there have been very similar uh, terror attacks, places like Nice, Barcelona, and, of course, uh, in New York on Halloween just last year. Anderson? Yeah,
2: 10 dead, 15 injured. Alex Marquardt, thanks for the latest. Appreciate it. Coming up just days after the funeral. Former First Lady Barbara Bush word tonight that her beloved husband, former President George H.W. Bush, is in intensive care. The latest from Houston ahead.